Paul Spilsbury, who is the dean of the faculty at Regent College, puts into words what I feel when after hearing the text read again. He writes, the Apostle John piles image upon image and picture upon picture so that we are almost overwhelmed trying to imagine the details of the vision. Or as another scholar put it, the text is so full, at some point, the imagination goes on strike. Now, before listening more carefully to the text, I want to speak to a criticism. A criticism that could be leveled against us, against me, for what we're going to do today, what we did last Sunday, and what we'll do next Sunday. The criticism is that taking time to reflect on the future has no relevance for living today. Certainly no relevance Monday through Friday. The criticism is that reflecting on the future diverts us from dealing with the really important issues of our time. It diverts us from the pressing task at hand. Some even say that reflecting on the future is a cop-out. Yet one more way the followers of Jesus try to escape the hard and harsh realities of life on this earth. As the old saying goes, and I've heard it said by church people, those with heaven's, heaven on their mind are of no earthly good. Now, if by heaven on their mind, one means the popular idea of people sitting on clouds and strumming guitars or harps, then reflecting on that future is a royal waste of time. But if by heaven on their minds, we mean the picture painted by the Bible, and especially the picture the Apostle John gives us that he received on the prison island of Patmos, then I disagree. Reflecting on that picture is not irrelevant at all. Indeed, as many have argued, those with that picture of the future on their mind are of the most earthly good. The fact is, we humans cannot but wonder about the future for a number of reasons. One is that we humans live in three tenses, in the past, in the present, and the future. Some of us more in the past, some of us more in the present, some of us more in the future. But all of us, to one degree or another, live in all three tenses. Would you agree? The present moment is, the present moment is seldom purely present. Every present moment partakes of the immediate past and of what we anticipate in the immediate future. The is is always participating in some degree to the was and to the will be. Yesterday, today, was tomorrow. And tomorrow, today, will be yesterday. No one lives in the present without some sense of the past and some sense of the future. There's another reason why it is right for us to do what we're going to do today. Every human being has some sense that there's more to the future than simply more of the present. Every human being has some sense that there's more to come. I, I like to quote Woody Allen. I don't believe in the afterlife, but I am bringing a change of underwear, just in case. Because we all sense deep in our soul that something more is out there. It's right to do what we're going to do today for yet another reason. The way we live in the present is shaped by our view of the future, usually unconsciously so. 
How we live today is shaped by what we think tomorrow holds. If you were to follow me around for a week or two, watching how I live, you could deduce what I think about the future. The decisions we make regarding time and money automatically and clearly reveal our sense of the future. The quality of the present is shaped by our experience of what has already taken place and by what we think is to come, which says to me that we want to make sure our vision of the future is as true as possible. And then there's yet one more reason why what we're doing today is not irrelevant. The most important reason of all, the Christian vision of the future is not a human wish dream. The first Christians did not dream up this vision. The Christian vision is, it, the Christian vision is what it is because it was given to us. It was given to us by Jesus Christ. It was given to us by the one who claims he holds the future in his hands. If he is right about the future, then we cheat ourselves by not reflecting on it. Okay. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That is the future. A new heaven and a new earth. I want to read again what Eugene Peterson, author of the Message Bible, says about Revelation 21.1. The biblical story began quite logically with a beginning. Now it draws to an end, not so logically, with a beginning. The sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation of Revelation. The product of these beginning and ending acts of creation are the same. The heavens and the earth and Genesis and the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation. And then this line. The story that has creation for its first word has creation for its last word. So good. Which means that the Christian vision of the future is not escapist. It is not escape from reality as we know it. It is the redeeming of reality as we know it. Which means that no one who has read Revelation 21 and 22 will ever wear a placard with the words, the end is near. The Christian vision is not about an end. It is about a beginning. A beginning of something that has no end. So if one were to wear a placard downtown Vancouver, it would be, the beginning is near. Thus a city. Revelation 21, 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared for a bride as for her husband. A city. The city that was shown long ago to the prophet Isaiah, but not as clearly, because Jesus Christ had not yet come. The lamb had not yet been slain. A city. Not a garden. Many people are initially disappointed when Jesus opens up his future to us. Because for many people, cities in this creation are, are not that inviting. As beautiful as many of the cities are in our world, they are places of violence and oppression and injustice and decay and death. Because often cities are set up as a place to escape the presence of the living God and therefore cannot help but becoming places of violence and oppression and injustice and decay and death. Look, a city, says John, a city like any, unlike any city 
any city builder has ever seen or imagined. Come down from God, says John. From God, mark that. That is, it's created by God. It's created by the creator. From God. The city we have longed to build but do not have the capacity to build. We did not build the first creation and we do not build the new creation. It is the gift. It comes down from God. It is the ideal city and therefore in many ways an antithesis to our cities. Revelation 21 verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. In the way John conveys this part of the vision of the future, he is intentionally drawing a contrast. A contrast with Babylon and with all of her many incarnations. Because earlier in the book, in Revelation 17, 1, John writes this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I will show you the punishment of the great harlot. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert. There was a woman whom John learns is Babylon the great. Now, historians tell us that Babylon was a wonder to behold. Stunning architecture, beautiful gardens, arranged in a perfect square, surrounded by decorated gates, but sadly, rotten to the core. Known for unbridled sensuality, selling everything by sexualizing it, unmitigated injustice, one sort of justice for the poor, another sort of justice for the rich, violence at every level of society, deceit and manipulation in politics and business. Know any city like that? Carried away in the spirit into the desert to see the harlot. Carried away in the spirit to a high mountain to see the bride. The new city, not only everything Babylon and her incarnations are not, but qualitatively more than any Babylon could be. The new city, in some sense already existing, one day coming down. And that is what we are waiting for at Advent. It's what we're waiting for every season of the year, every day of the year. Now, as we've already noted, as we've heard and seen, John conveys what Jesus showed him using all kinds of images and symbolism. Images and symbolism that stretch the imagination, blowing the circuit boards of the mind, yet somehow filling our hearts with hope. I think that we can gather up all that John sees in three words, earthy, glorious, and intimate. The city which Jesus is bringing with him is earthy, glorious, and intimate. And again, we will not comprehend immediately all that he saw. Earthy, glorious, and intimate. Earthy. The new city coming down from God is very earthy. Not earthly, that would imply immorality. Earthy, material, like the stuff of this creation. So, John sees stones and gems of all colors. He sees walls and gates and streets. He sees trees yielding their fruit in their season. He sees rivers, one filled with eternal life. A real earth, 
a earthy earth. I had the privilege of studying under the great New Testament scholar George Ladd. And he would re regularly remind us that the Bible, quote, always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. God originally made us earthy, earthbound creatures. And Jesus Christ, he will fulfill that original intent on a new earth. Earthy. The city of God is very earthy. Another way to make the point is our destiny is not to go to heaven. Our destiny is to go to a new heaven and a new earth. And is this not one of the implications of Christmas? What happened the first Christmas? God took up humanity. God became one of us. God became a creature. God clothed himself with our flesh and blood. We follow an earthy God. And is this not one of the implications of Easter? What happened that morning? Jesus of Nazareth, God made flesh, rose from the grave bodily. In a new body, yes, but in a body nevertheless. And is this not one of the implications of ascension? What happened that day when Jesus was taken up in the cloud? God made flesh. God resurrected in the flesh, took his seat on the throne in the flesh. When he ascended to heaven, he did not shed himself of his flesh as though he was fleshly only for 33 years. He ascended in his forever humanity. A human being is on the throne in a real body, in a real earthy body. The second, of the person, second person of the Trinity became human forever. The Trinity now exists in a new mode. Humanity is there within the life of the Trinity. God loves humanity. Read Genesis 1. God creates things day after day. It was good, it was good, it was good. And then when God creates humanity, God pauses and says, very good. Tov meod. God thinks it's good to be human. God likes flesh and blood and has chosen to take up this earthiness into his being forever. So, contrary to popular opinion, the Christian vision of the future is not otherworldly. It is new worldly. The Christian hope is not to be stripped of our creatureliness. That's a Gnostic hope. The Christian hope is to be stripped of all that has kept us from realizing the goodness of our creatureliness. Hallelujah, someone can say. Earthy. The future is earthy. Now, are, are you with me okay still? It's, it's okay not to comprehend. Let's press more deeply into the earthiness of this new city. What John sees in what Jesus shows him is that the new city is freed from all the consequences of sin that have ruined our cities. Take note of the first thing he sees, Revelation 21.1, and there was no longer any sea. Does he mean that the new creation has no water source? No. For John, as for many of the authors of the Bible, the sea is a symbol of chaos. The sea represents the power of chaos unleashed in creation by human sin, threatening to suck the world into the void of nothingness. We see this at work all over the world today. 
there was no longer any sea. In the new city, chaos is gone. And what does John hear from the throne? What Alita and Chris showed us last Sunday. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. All those are consequences of human sin. No more. They're taken away. Sin and its awful fallout of death taken away. And how is the throne described in the vision? 22.1. The water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne and from the Lamb. The throne of the universe is the source of endless life flowing with healing and wholeness. This city is saturated with the life of God. The city is dripping with the wholeness of God. And, John says, the curse, this curse that is hanging over the old creation because of our sin, the curse is gone. 22.3, no longer was there any curse. It's gone because the lamb was slain. And one more sign of earthy. It's 21.4. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, into the new city. What's this? In the first century, kings represent cultures. For kings to come in is to say cultures come in with all the industry and activity that makes for cities. And the beauty of this new city is that all cultures come in. All cultures get redeemed and come in. 21.3, they shall be his people. The word is plural, not singular. They shall be his peoples. Irish, Scots, Filipinos, Poles, Brazilians, Chinese of every sort, Armenians, Swedes, Mexicans, Nigerians, Israeli and Palestinian. The list goes on, all redeemed and all included in the new city. What a wonderful world we're looking for. Oh, and there's one more thing. The price tags get switched. Did you notice that when we read the text? Gold. Gold is so plentiful in that new city, it no longer has the value it does in these cities because it's so plentiful, gold is now used as the asphalt for the streets. Earthy, very earthy. Okay. The image of gold then leads us to the second word that we can use to gather up the images and symbols of Revelation 21 and 22. Glorious. 21, 22, the city shone with the glory of God. 21, 23, the glory of God gives it light. This word glory, doxa, as in the word doxology, means luminosity. But more fundamentally, it means the heaviness of a thing. Something is glorious because it is inherently weighty and therefore luminous. The glory of God is a way of saying the luminosity of God's inherent weightiness. In the new city, glory is everywhere. It shines everywhere. Everywhere in the city, God is manifesting his inherent weightiness. Everywhere in the city, God's glory shines forth. The glory came upon and rested in the tabernacle in the wilderness, but now the glory fills this city. Which is what the image of gems and jewels is declaring. The whole city shimmers like diamonds and jasper. Glorious presence everywhere. And because of this glory, John says there's no need of the light of the sun and the moon. 
Not that there's no sun or moon. Not at all. It's just that there's no need for the light of the sun and the moon. The glory of God shines so brightly, there's no need for any other light. I can't even begin to imagine that. And get this. Because of the glory, there is no need for a temple in the city. This is stunning. This is a huge surprise for John, a lifelong Jew. For how can humans relate to the living God without temple? 21, 22. I saw no temple. Why? Why is there no temple? Ready? Why is there no temple? Are you ready? Because the whole city is the temple. There's no need for a separate sacred space. It's all sacred. 21.3, look, says the voice from the throne, the tabernacle of God is with men and women, and he will live with them everywhere, all the time. No need for temples. But there's more to it. No temple, because get this, God himself is the temple. Jesus himself is the temple. What? <laughs> 21, 22. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Mercy. I, I can't get my mind around this either. God himself is going to be the temple where we meet God. Jesus himself is going to be the place where we meet Jesus. No more division between sacred and secular. God is everywhere, present and accessible in the new city. The city temple is full of the light of the glory of God because it is the temple. And, and then there's one of the most dramatic moments in what Jesus reveals to John. John is taken by all of this light in the city. He sees all of this shining in the city, and he wonders, naturally, where does it come from? John searches the city, goes up street after street, down these streets of gold. Where is all this glory coming from, he wants to know. And then, as Richard Bow puts it, John finally sees a figure standing at the point where the light shines most brightly, and he cries out with recognition, its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 21, 23, the lamp is the lamb. I still remember the first time I saw this. We were living in Manila. I was alone in my study, praying and reading on a particularly challenging day. And I read, the lamp is the lamb. Its lamp is the lamb. The source of the glory of God is the lamb. The source of all the radiant luminosity of the inherent weightiness of the living God is the Lamb who was slain. The lamp of the glory of God is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world now and forevermore. One more image of glory. John gives us the measurements of the new city. 21:16. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide, 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide, roughly 1,400 miles or 2,230 kilometers long and wide, a big city. The city is laid out like a square, says John, 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide, 12,000. Is this number a statistic or a symbol? I, I think it's a symbol. <laughs> 
All the numbers in the last book of the Bible are symbols. 12,000. 12. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of the Lamb. 12 times 10, a complete number. 12 times 10 times 10, a really complete number. 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, a really, really complete number. Clearly symbolic. I remember my dad one Sunday afternoon trying to calculate the size of this new city. And he was treating the numbers as statistics because he wanted to know how much space there was for each person that was going to this place. <laughs> 12,000 stadia, about 1,400 miles. 1,400 times 1,400, 1,960,000 square miles or 4,900,000 square kilometers. That's a huge city. But we're not dealing with statistics, a symbol. 12,000 times 12,000, a really big number. There's enough space for all of God's redeemed people. But notice, Revelation 21, 16 again. The city was laid out as a square as long as it was wide. Now listen. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. Whoa, 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 whoa. 12,000 stadia in length and in width and in height, as high as it is long and wide. I thought John was talking about two dimensions. Now he shifted into three dimensions, length, height, and width. Now we're talking about a cube, are we not? This square city has all of a sudden become a cubic city. What is John wanting us to see in this imagery? Well, as noted earlier, John is a lifelong Jew. He sees the city shaped in a cube. Where would that have taken his mind? That is, where in the Hebrew scripture do we find a cube? 1 Kings 6.20. King Solomon is building a temple for Yahweh. And the text says he built the inner sanctuary in the center of the temple. The most holy place, says the text. And now listen. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height, all overlaid with gold. A cube. A perfect cube. The holy of holies in the holy temple is a cube. The most sacred space in sacred space is shaped like a cube. Do you see what John wants us to see? The new city is a cube, meaning the new city is itself the holy of holies. The whole city is the holy of holies. We are going to live our earthy life in the holy of holies. No wonder there is glory. No wonder we are going to be changed. The whole of creation is the most sacred space of all sacred spaces. Which leads us to the third word we could use to gather up the images of Revelation 21 and 22. Intimate. Life in the coming city is going to partake of an intimate quality a quality of intimacy, sorry, with the living God that no one had ever imagined. I saw the holy city prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Life in this earthy, glorious city is going to partake of the intimacy 
of marriage. And therefore, a depth of relationship with the triune God, none of us ever imagined would be possible. Revelation 22, 4, and they shall see his face. They, you, I, will see his face. The face of the Almighty in the face of the Lamb. We will see other faces too. We're going to see the faces of those who have gone before us. We're going to see the face of Abraham and Sarah and Moses and King David and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And on it goes. And we're going to see the face of those who helped us believe. I get to see the face of St. Augustine and of C.S. Lewis and Karl Barth and Leslie Newbigin and Margaret Clarkson. And I'll finally see the face of E. Stanley Jones. And I'll see the face of my grandmother again. Oh, what a moment that'll be. I'll get to see my dad's face again. I have so much to tell him. I'll get to see the face of my mother again and express the gratitude I didn't get to express for the way she cared for me. And I'll get to see the face of my two brothers who've gone before me. And I'll get to see the face of our son. But beyond all those faces, we're going to see the face of the Savior of the world. That face into which the Virgin Mary adoringly gazed that night she gave birth to him. The face into which Joseph proudly looked for days upon days. The face into which the elderly Simeon looked when that day in the temple he held the infant Jesus and then he said, Lord, I can now depart in peace for my eyes have beheld your salvation. See his face. On that we will focus next Sunday. We've already seen enough that we can't comprehend today. And how do we know that all we have seen and cannot comprehend is true? How do we know the new city will come? For one reason. It's only one. He said it would come. Jesus said it would come. Jesus said he would come and bring with him the earthy, glorious, intimate city of God. He is the fulfillment of all the promises made about him, and he will fulfill all the promises made by him.